Welcome to episode 189 of the Bear Marriage Podcast. I am Sheila Ray Gregoire from BearMarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage, your sex life, and now your parenting. And I am joined today by my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hello, hello. And we are about to have Zachary Wagner on to talk about his book, Non-Toxic Masculinity. And then Rebecca's going to join me again for just a little clip as we analyze another Instagram reel. So this is going to be an awesome podcast. Um, Before we get going, She Deserves Better. Raising Girls to Resist Toxic Teachings on Sex, Self, and Speaking Up launched last week. Mm-hmm. And we did have a podcast after the launch, but we recorded it before it launched. And so we didn't know what was going to happen. So can I tell you what happened at the point where episode 188 launched? Like last week, as that episode was launching, we were sitting at number 123 on Amazon. Which is astounding. That's 123 out of all books. That means only 122 books were selling better than ours on Amazon. And you can probably Amazing. think what some of those were, like Harry like Potter. every Harry like Potter Prince book. Harry, <laughs> like Prince Harry's book. Like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but we were, we were up there. And that is because of you guys. Mm-hmm. And so we just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Um we were not expecting this. And I've been telling myself that the reason she deserves better is selling so well is because people are realizing, hey, she deserves better. Exactly. Like they want better. We want better for ourselves. We want better for our daughters. And I just think a sea change is happening in the church. And I'm so excited. I I haven't been this excited in years. Like, I really feel like the ground shifted underneath us. And so thank you. You have given that to me. <laughs> and so please keep telling pe- keep telling people about She Deserves Better. Um, I've been recording five podcasts a day for other people's podcasts for the last, like, month. I'm, I'm getting really tired, but it's been awesome. <laughs> but the word is getting out. Please keep telling your friends. Buy it for your youth pastor. Buy it for your counselors. Buy it for your sister, your friends to reparent little 15-year-old you because um, this book is setting people free and we're just, we're so thrilled to read people's um, reviews and to see how well it's doing. So thank you. We've been talking about She Deserves Better for several weeks on the podcast and we're going to do some more. Uh, coming up in May, Rebecca's going to have an awesome pajama party where we are going to read Brio Magazine excerpts. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there is there is more coming. But we wanted to do something different today and change the focus from girls to boys and have Zachary Wagner on for his brand new book. And so... Will you welcome Zachary with me? Okay, everybody. I am so excited about this interview. You guys know that when I bring people on the podcast, it's because I really like them and I really like their books. And I am so excited about this book, Non-Toxic Masculinity by Zachary Wagner. And Zach is an ordained minister. He is the editorial director at the Center for Pastor Theologians, and he is currently working on his PhD in New Testament at Oxford University. And welcome, Zach. Yeah, delighted to be here, Sheila. Thanks so much uh, for having me, and great to meet you in this in this way. Yeah, I I am just I I am so thrilled about your book. Um, I did endorse your book, so head, heads up just for everybody. I don't know if I have to do a disclaimer about that, but I did I did read <laughs> this one early, um, and sent you. An and you did in fact read it. I should, did. Should, I yes. read the whole thing. I took notes and everything. So yeah. yes, I, I I did read it because I do tend to read the books that I endorse. Yeah. Um, and. You know, I feel like I feel like when I read this book, I thought, okay, the tide mm. is really turning. Mm. Um, so IVP Intervarsity Press, I believe it is, put it out. Yes. Mm-hmm. And as you said in in the beginning of your book, there's been so many women writing into this space. Yes. But there haven't been a lot of men. And I just feel like, okay, we've got we've got the guys coming on board too. Yes. yes. <laughs> and things are really gonna change. So I got a whole bunch of questions for you. Sure. Before I ask questions. 
I just want to read some quotes from the first chapter. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I could read the entire first chapter. It's really good. But I did I did pull out two quotes that I want I want you to talk about. So the first is this. Mm. The fight against sexual brokenness involves more than an individualistic fight against temptation. It is a fight for justice on behalf of the men, women, and children who have been dehumanized by a deficient and sub-Christian view of what it means to be a man. I mean, that's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think so often in, you know, the white evangelical Christian circles, whatever disclaimers you want to put in front of that, there has been this tendency to think about sexual sin and brokenness in this individual individualistic frame. You know, this is mm -hmm. the, the every man's battle frame that I'm sure you're going to be asking me more about um, <laughs> where my sexual sin is not even really about the people that I might be sinning against. Uh, it's mm -hmm. actually just about me trying to lock it down and maintain my purity and holiness just between me and God. There's no corporate dimension to it. There's no systems that are in place that are forming uh, men and women in dehumanizing ways. So uh, I just wanted to highlight just with that opening, this is not the every man's battle of an individualistic struggle against temptation uh, that I think so often we're taught to believe that it is when mm. it comes to these issues. So that's, that's what I was trying to signal with that. Yeah, book. I love it. And and I love what you just said too. I remember reading Every Man's Battle and when they are talking about um, sexual sin, they really are, they really do describe lust as, as a sin against his purity, not yes. as a sin against the woman that he is lusting after. It's amazing Absolutely. how, how he is the victim of his own sin. And so he's yes, hurting yes. himself. And well, yeah, you're hurting yourself. You're primarily, there is a victim here. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. And it's never mentioned. So really good. Okay. Here's another one that I like. This sort of, sort of summarizes your first chapter. Why is it that so many Christian men fall short of their own ideals? Why is it that an insidious, toxic masculinity has found a safe haven in our churches, hidden behind a veneer of respect for women? Yeah. So can you unpack that one? What do you mean by hidden under, a, hidden behind a veneer of respect for women? Yeah. Because I think so often when Christian men are, when it's brought to their attention that their ways of speaking, relating to, teaching about women and about human sexuality are harmful. They say something along the lines of, well, I don't hate women. I respect women. I want women to be protected. I'm commending these principles around sexual purity or whatever the case may be because, you know, God loves women and I love women too. Mm -hmm. But part of what I'm trying to highlight is that this respect for women that I think the vast majority of Christian men would want to say is representative of the way they think about women. Mm -hmm. I, I I respect, I love women, uh, is actually superficial. And it's a veneer, it's a facade over some deeper issues of disdain for female bodies, disdain for male bodies and their experience of sexual desire, mm -hmm. um, as well as systems of, of power and control and coercion and guaranteed access to sex within marriage and all number of things, as well as, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll get into all of this, 
as well as a diminishment of male responsibility and uh, a tendency to give men a free pass when they hurt people and all of these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to acknowledge and make people feel seen like, Hey, I get that you feel like you respect women and that you feel like you love women. But just because you say that on the surface doesn't mean the substructure of your attitude towards uh, your own sexuality and uh, women's bodies is not actually dehumanizing and uh, sub-Christian, I would say. Yeah, exactly. So you're setting up this first chapter, kind of telling what what the rest of the book is about and um, and how you are going to deal with this idea of of toxic masculinity and how our our ideas of what it means to be masculine have have hurt us and building an idea of how men can grow into that. Um, I I like to, I just want to mention this in passing um, because we've been dealing with this all week as we have been uh, dealing with the launch of She Deserves Better, how you say, well, people always point out, well, the culture is worse. So why are you criticizing the church? And it's like, that's such a stupid argument. It really is. Um... (laughs) Because, okay, so (laughs) because the culture is really bad, we can be bad? Like, No, it's it's nothing. And it's, I mean, the Apostle Paul talks in the book of Ephesians, what business is, is it of mine to judge those outside? Yeah. Instead, worry about yourself, worry about the Christian community. And yeah, I mean, I think this is also a little bit of what Jesus is getting at when he says, judge not lest you also be judged. It doesn't mean don't create value judgments about the world in any way. It means hold yourself to the same standard at the very least. And for Christians, we should be holding ourselves to a higher standard. So like Hollywood's going to do Hollywood. HBO is going to HBO. Pornhub's going to Pornhub. Like, <laughs> you know, like what is more urgent, it seems to me, is for Christians to address the hypocrisy within our own communities. Mm-hmm. Um, not least because it completely compromises our ability to even say anything helpful to the culture about human sexuality. Yeah. You know, if they're looking at us and our, you know, we don't have our stuff together. Yeah. Uh, how on earth are we in a position to say, well, you know, God's word says, and we need to be living according to these reasons. And they're looking at us saying, you don't even do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, it, it, so that's one piece. And then the other piece is like what I try to highlight you know, in the early chapters of the book, it's like, this is really serious. If women, children, and men are suffering in the church, in the name of Christ, this is why church-based sexual abuse is uniquely damaging because it has this veneer of spirituality over it. And it has this, this entire added layer of God authorized this person to do this to me, or they are claiming God's authority and they're harming me in this way, or they're using scripture to excuse or justify deep, deep harm. Um, And that to me is far more serious than anything, you know, culture or pagans are doing out there um, that we need to draw our attention first to what's going on. Uh, in the church. 
Exactly. I love it. Okay. So let's, let's get into your um, actual arguments. Um, toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. What is it? Yeah. So you can go Oxford English dictionary on it and you can find like something along the lines of it is cultural values associated with masculinity that teach men to be mas- macho or, or emotionally repressed or violent or aggressive all well and good. I think it is a kind of cultural buzzword. That's what you're going to get. The way I define it in my book is I say it's a way of living out male embodiment that dehumanizes self or the other. So that word toxic, you know, you think of toxic as poisonous, something that leads to death. Mm -hmm. And dehumanization is a way of making people less human, making them less alive, making yourself less alive. And it's also connects to the you know, biblically, uh, the idea of sin. Sin is a falling off of the life that we were created to live. Um, So then toxic masculinity, it seems to me, is this unique way that sin fractures uh, male embodiment and leads men to think about themselves and others in a way that is less than human, and then to treat themselves and others in a way that is less than human. Yeah, I find it so interesting that that when you talk about toxic masculinity, people think that you're criticizing men. And I often yes. get, get called up with this. It's like, well, no, unless you think that all masculinity is toxic, then no. <laughs> like there, mm-hmm. there, there's a word toxic there. That's what yes. we're criticizing. Yes. Um, so so can you give us some specific examples that that you give in your book of of what would be toxic masculinity? What would be dehumanizing? Yeah. Um, well, my book focuses in on kind of toxic male sexuality. Mm-hmm. So it has to do with the male experience of, you know, you could say the erotic or sexual desire or sexual intimacy or any number of things. Um, so I think the version of toxic masculine sexuality that I'm trying to critique and hopefully help correct is this idea that men are helplessly and hopelessly hypersexual in their way of being in the world and their way of viewing the world. Mm-hmm. And this is really the thesis of every men's battle, it seems to me, that just because male, therefore hypersexual, just because you are in a male body and have certain hormones in your bloodstream or something like that, you are going to be dehumanizing people around you and viewing them only through this erotic lens. So I think when you have this hypersexualized vision of masculine sexuality, it's easy to see how this is dehumanizing to women. And mm-hmm. women become sex- sexual objects. Every woman is kind of viewed through this erotic lens. It reduces women to their sexuality rather than their full personhood. Uh, But one of the points that I wanted to make is this is also profoundly dehumanizing to men. It makes men into these like subhuman sex animals or machines. They're not moral agents. They're just like brute uh, instinctual creatures. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, something that I talk about in the book is that if in purity culture, women are sexual objects, then men are sexual animals. And both of those are dehumanizing ways of thinking about human human beings. You know, animals aren't human beings. They're less than human beings. Machines or objects aren't human beings. Uh, so that's a little bit what I'm getting yeah. at. Um, if you're lusting after a woman, 
as a man, not only are you treating her in a less than human way, but you, as you participate in that sin, are actually treating yourself or acting yourself in a way that is subhuman. That's what it means to sin in a way. Yeah, I love that, you know, because this is this is one thing I could never understand is how can people read every man's battle and not think, oh, my gosh, this makes men sound so terrible. Yes. <laughs> you know, and when I when I criticize every man's battle, it's because I believe in men. I believe in the goodness of men, yes. that men are created in the image of God, too. Yes. <laughs> I, it's amazing. OK, you had a really interesting um, conversation that you recounted when you were in college with a guy named Jim who wasn't a Christian. Yeah. And um not his real just... name. I should say all the all, yes. the, all the yes, of course. I know I do that too. Everyone's yes. names yep, change. Yep, yep. Um I often let people choose their names and it's often it's funny often oh, what people funny. come up with. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but what can you tell us about that? Because I thought it was such an interesting convo. Sure. Yeah. So it was just kind of on the slow day working in a restaurant, not many customers. Me and this other guy were just kind of sitting around as you do at work when there's nothing going on. And uh, he knew that I was a Christian and that I was going to a Bible college nearby. And he just kind of launched into this, into this random set of questions, it seemed to me. He's like, why are Christians so obsessed with sex? And that really caught me off guard. And we went back and forth for a little bit. But one of the things that I said was, don't you think like the culture in general is obsessed with sex? And he said, well, I, I guess, Sure. But Christians, it seems to me, are the ones who are super preoccupied with it, constantly thinking about who should and shouldn't be doing it, offering their unsolicited opinions to others <laughs> about it. And um, I think that's a fair assessment oftentimes. Evangelical Christians seem to have this fixation on sex um, to, and I think he it, that was an accurate read where we're just so obsessed with it sometimes. Um, and we, and that again, I think is connected to this like hyper-sexualized vision of, of not only maleness, but humanity in general, um, mm -hmm. where it takes up so much airtime in our discipleship materials and all of this, and often not in ways that actually are life-giving. Um, or ways that seem uh, compelling or beautiful to the culture, but just kind of come across as Christians saying weird, cringy stuff about sex. Yeah, yeah. and we've all seen examples of that lately. Yes. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that he, he said, you know, I can have sex or I can think about sex and then I cannot. Like, like I, it's not like sure, this yes. all the time. And what we found when we were looking um, in our book, She Deserves Better, when we were looking at the Christian literature for girls, is it was almost entirely about sex. The secular literature for teen girls was not. It was about self-esteem and boundaries and yes. mental health and friendships. But everything to girls was about sex. And it was the same for boys. It's like the only conversation we have with totally. young people is sex. I mean, that's, I think, what purity culture was and is to some mm -hmm. extent it is this narrowing of teen discipleship in particular to these questions around sexual purity and i you know i put that in quotes because i actually don't think that's a super helpful way to use the term purity from the biblical perspective but yeah you know um, i remember i remember talking to my husband like i don't know maybe a decade ago and we were trying to think of of how we like in previous years 
had had distinguished between like a real Christian, like an evangelical Christian who loves Jesus, and someone who's just like a mainline Christian who they say they love Jesus, but they don't actually. And <laughs> we realized that the way that we figured it out was whether they saved sex for marriage. So these other people that was who, the litmus test. That was the litmus test. So these other people who are like busy feeding the poor and <laughs> you know, and 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 loving people, that didn't count. None of that counted because you know, they, they may have had a sexual partner beforehand. Sure. Whereas these people who um, weren't doing anything for the poor, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying that yes. all mainstream Christians do suffer the poor and no evangelical Christians did. I mean, my goodness, that's not at all. We were evangelical Christians and we were going to Kenya and saving the poor and everything. But, yep. but like the, the whole idea that nothing mattered except sex. Yes. And so that was our definition. And I, I found that was really interesting because that was never Jesus's definition. <laughs> No. And I think the way there emerged after the sexual revolution, kind of in evangelical Christianity, this focus on sexual purity, again, in quotes, uh, it actually kind of ruined, uh, you know, I'll speak for myself, it ruined purity language for me in the Bible. So when I read, you know, how can a young man or a young person keep their way pure? Mm -hmm. I'm immediately thinking about like not having sex before marriage, not looking at porn, not <laughs> masturbating right. when this, the, the, the language itself, you know, maybe it has some relevance to those questions, but that's not what it's about narrowly. Mm -hmm. Or when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I think as, you know, a 15 year old boy who read all the every young man's battle stuff and is trying so dang hard to kind of my accountability structures and software to like not masturbate, not look at <laughs> pornography. And I think, yeah, I got to blessed are those who don't masturbate or look at pornography for they will see God. And I'm not saying again, I'm not saying that has no relevance, but the biblical category of purity and righteousness and holiness is so much bigger than mm -hmm. just our sexuality. And in the early chapters of I Isaiah, uh, the, the people of God are told to cleanse themselves. And we, in our kind of American frame, is like, oh, they were probably having sex before marriage. <laughs> and uh, But the Isaiah goes on to say, no, this is about oppression of the poor. This is about corruption in the systems of power. And you need to cleanse yourself from that impurity. I, I just think we sell ourselves short of a really rich tapestry of biblical language. Um, and when we think purity is all about sex, that probably says more about us and our preoccupation with sex than it does about what the, the text is actually saying oftentimes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So um, you said that in the book, there's several different um, examples of manhood that the evangelical church has put forward lately. Yep. Do you want to go over what some of them are that are harmful? Um, sure. Well, we've already talked, I think, a little bit about the um, kind of every man's battle framing of men as these hyper mm -hmm. hypersexual creatures. Uh, I think a couple other prominent ones that we could name uh, would be Mark Driscoll's massive influence mm -hmm. in the kind of late aughts, early teens, um, and then beyond as a muscular masculinity you might say jesus as this tough guy dude's dude <laughs> um 
And that maybe not in the same ways as Driscoll commended it, but we still see that having massive influence in various kind of corners and not super, super fringy corners of the mm-hmm. evangelical church either, although it's it's influential there as well. This idea of uh, Jesus fitting kind of all the cultural stereotypes of masculine identity that you might associate with, I don't know, white 1950s America or <laughs> late 19th century Victorian England or something like that. It's this Jesus came to make men more manly narrative. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I also think uh, I I try to be careful not to too directly critique um wild at heart because it's been so so long since i've read it mm-hmm. um but i think it is fair to say that at least the first edition of wild at heart i haven't read the more recent one kind of narrows men into these stereotypes around pretty superficial things arguably you know like hanging out in the woods and you know just being adventurous or this or that or the other thing i'm not saying that that's any that's bad necessarily but when we make the essence of quote unquote biblical masculinity this kind of cultural stereotype uh mm-hmm. that becomes harmful to me uh just because it excludes men who maybe don't feel like they need they fit that mold yeah. and this whole idea that you know y'all are a bunch of betas and Jesus wants you to be an alpha male. And I read the new Testament and I see, you know, the apostle Paul says in the early chapters of first Corinthians that God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. Mm -hmm. So this preoccupation with power and strength, uh, I don't think has much of a place, frankly, in a Christian vision of masculinity. That's not to say that certain exercises of power and physical strength are bad necessarily. This goes back to what we were saying. Not everything about masculinity or everything one might associate with masculinity is evil. It's not wrong to be man. It's not wrong to be physically strong. It's not wrong to be six, six, six inches taller than your wife or your girlfriend. Of course not. <laughs> but it's about the vision of what that means and how you live that out. That can get into some pretty harmful and dehumanizing places. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we've really, we've really pushed the, the men as, you know, being in power and, and being strong and, and, and leading um, and pulling the women along in evangelicalism. That's, that's been a big problem. Um, You know, one of the things I do like about your book too, is that it isn't just for married men. Um, You've got stuff in there for singles. And so I just, I just want our listeners to understand that a single guy could totally read this and get a lot out of it. I think even late teens could read it and get a lot Mm -hmm. out of it. Uh, So it isn't just for married guys, but because this is a marriage podcast, I want to talk about some of the marriage stuff. Sure, (laughs) yeah, So it's not that that is the whole book. So, so everyone listening, you can buy this for like your your son who's in his 20s or for single friends, whatever, um, as well. But um, I do want to talk about some of the marriage stuff you said. So uh, I was I was really moved um, when you were talking about Sh- your wife, Shelby, and her coming forward with her story of, of being abused as a child, sexually abused as a child. And you went to a therapist and that whole conversation. Can you can you tell us that story? So, yeah, something I, I talk about in the book is the fact with with my wife's blessing and consent i should qualify is some of the struggles that we experienced and and to this day continue to experience in our in our marriage and our intimate life 
And through some conversations and revelations came to find and realize and come to terms with the fact that Shelby, as you said, is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. So once that kind of reality came crashing into our framework for the way we thought about our marriage, uh, in conversations with a therapist, uh, we were wisely told, you know what, why don't you just take a pause on your sex life as a couple, focus on other parts of the relationship, focus on healing, focus on understanding, uh, seeing uh, what the other person needs and what their fears are, all sorts of things. Really, really good advice, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we just took a step back from that. But me then, having been formed in this culture and through certain readings of 1 Corinthians 7 to expect that sex within marriage was, or at least should be, always quote unquote available to me. And that my needs as a man are just part of the fabric of the universe and can't be otherwise. So I was struggling with that. I had kind of become accustomed to a certain rhythm of sexual intimacy in my, in, in my marriage. And I wasn't comfortable with just like, of course, just well, I have other outlets for this. It's not like I can just go watch porn or I can just go masturbate and feel fine about that and no big deal. And, um, you know, in some contexts, that might be the quote unquote solution. Um, well, the masturbation, not the porn. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and um, so I was feeling pretty frustrated and uh, but also feeling terrible about that. And Shelby, importantly, um, for the purposes of this story, was also feeling terrible. She felt like she was letting me down, like talking to our therapist, hey, I know you said, but I just feel like I, I'm i just a failure of a wife right now. We're not engaging in that. I'm too, like, it's too triggering for me. I really can't think about going there. My body is not ready for that. But I know that this is something Zach needs. And this is something he deserves as a husband. And this is something that I want to give him. And our therapist just said, hey, Shelby, I really appreciate what you're saying. I can tell you love Zach so much, but this stuff is so important for you to work through. And you need to realize that Zach can survive without sex. <laughs> and then she looked at me, the therapist, and said, Zach, you can survive without sex. And I was just stunned on one sense. Like, of course, I knew that was true, but I didn't realize how much Shelby and I had both internalized this idea that I needed sex on the level that I like needed food or something to survive and that I couldn't live as a faithful husband or just as a happy, joyful person in my marriage in a context in which my sexual quote unquote needs mm -hmm. had been put on the shelf for an indefinite amount of time. But of course, this is just how life works, isn't it? Anybody who's been married for a while knows, and I know you've interacted with some really bad advice in some certain in some books that could maybe in this context remain nameless around things like when she's on her period or during pregnancy or immediately after pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But women, I think, understand that sex isn't always available in the same way as something that even couples that love each other and desire each other can do at any given moment. But we've shaped um, the expectation in marriage around this um, insatiable sexual need that men have that it would be sinful to deny them. 
Um, and that was something that I really had to unlearn. Um, and we're, I mean, we're so glad that we did. And that's, that's some hard work, honestly, as, as a man, if you've been shaped by these ideas to learn to have kind of healthier attitudes around your sexual needs, or even the experience of arousal, any number of things, but this is part of just growing up and, mm -hmm. uh, becoming a, a mature, uh, individual and, uh, a loving husband, frankly. Yeah. I love that. I think it is true, isn't it? That we tend to portray like men's needs as, as being constant and that they yes. must never, they, they, they cannot ebb and flow or, or change with the rhythms of life. Whereas women's bodies are actually made to have rhythms. Yes, very <laughs> and, much. And it's interesting, even if you look at things like the 72 hour rule, which she mm -hmm. needs to provide sex every seven or release in some way every 72 hours, even if she's on her period, um, which is very much what, what has been taught to women is that we are not allowed to ebb and flow with our bodies because men's bodily need is so much greater. And it, yes. that is actually very dehumanizing. Like very if you much. think about it, that is a dehumanizing message to men. Yes. Yeah. Which, which is um, sad. Okay. There's, there's another uh, quote that I have for you in that same area. You said, just because it's not rape doesn't mm. mean it's not dehumanizing. Both parties can consent to one-sided sex. Yeah, I mean, and this is something in that same season of our life that Shelby and I, because the the revelation, and I think Shelby owning that so often in the early years of our marriage, when she would have consented to being intimate, it was not out of a place of her own desire. It was an obligatory, and I know you've, you know, <laughs> obligatory sex is not sexy. Yes. <laughs> um, but, and I think once I realized that this was out of a sense of obligation on her end, like, that's not, that's not, um, what's, what's the right word? That's not appealing from my side either. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to be with someone who doesn't want to be with me. And I think so often there can develop this tendency in Christian marriages for a woman to make herself available mm -hmm. and not even just a woman, just a partner to make themselves available to, to the other person, not just in spite of their lower level of desire in that moment, but actually contrary to their desire not to do that for any, any reason. Yeah. Like I, I like, and, I like to say there's a difference between I actively don't want to have sex right now. And, uh, you know, or, or like, I want to not have sex right now. And I yes. don't want to have sex right now. Like someone sure. might not particularly want to have sex right now, but they could get themselves into it. But then sure. there's times where you actively don't want to have sex right now. Yes. <laughs> no. And yeah. I think that's an important, I mean, that's an important distinction and to force for, you know, for one partner to force themselves when they actively do not want to have sex, mm -hmm. they can consent kind of on a mental, even relational level to intimacy with the other person in a way that is dehumanizing to them and really also dehumanizing to the other person. It makes sex something that's not about communion. It's about service. It's about, um, and of course, like, Sex can be about service and mutuality in a really beautiful way, but it's not about like 
being someone's slave and uh, you know, making yourself available to them regardless of how you feel. So I think that's so important because Shelby and I, in our relationship, I had like some really hard, honest conversations. I was like, do you feel like, like, do you feel like you, you consent to this? Like, do you feel like that was a dynamic that was always present in our relationship? And um, she said, yeah, but just because I consented doesn't mean I wanted to do it. Um, and that's what I mean when I say just because it's not me forcing her to do anything doesn't mean it's not profoundly dehumanizing. Um, and I think that's why we can do better even then. Of course, consent is a baseline, but we can do better in our conversations around sex and what makes for a beautiful experience of sex and marriage than just did you get the thumb? Did you get the OK? Did you get the thumbs up before you continued? Right. I know there's a lot of people listening who have been trying to get their spouse and especially their husband to understand this dynamic. What helped you to see it? Was there anything that Shelby said or was it really just God working in you or? Um, yeah, I think it was some of those conversations with, with a therapist, the realization that I don't need sex. Mm -hmm. And also the realization that I don't want to be with somebody who doesn't want to be with me in that moment. I mean, that seems so basic. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking of, of listeners who may find themselves in a situation like that, but it's worth asking, do you actually want to do this with me? If I, if I have no interest in it right now, mm -hmm. is that, is that, that's not going to make you, I want, and you know, I want you to feel desired as well. And I can't, I can't give that to you in this moment. Mm -hmm. And I think for men and for women in general, a big part of sexual intimacy is feeling received and accepted and also desired by the other person. So one, one-sided sex probably isn't going to soothe whatever need for love and connection that you're feeling. It is more akin to the kind of pornographic masturbatory orientation towards our sexuality that is just about self-soothing. It's not about connecting with another person. So those were some of the things that uh, came, came to mind for me. I think it was, yeah, it was really this realization that, hey, it might be painful and and genuinely sad and lonely to feel like my desire is not is not met with you know my partner's desire coming back towards me but that sadness and loneliness and and genuine pain is not licensed for me to kind of push through whatever is going on on the other side of that and that's not really what i want from sex and there are way healthier outlets for um, engaging with the, 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 the pain or the loneliness of unrequited sexual desire. We could, mm -hmm. we could call it that. And then also just the duh realization that there are tons of single out people out there that don't have sex all the time that are just deal with it like adults yeah. and, um, <laughs> live happy and fulfilled lives despite not having a sexual partner, um, right. in their lives. Yeah, that's great. Um, you go on to talk about the formation of men's sexuality. And you talked about something which um, really makes me sad, which is how often young boys are shamed 
just for having sexual feelings. Um, I, I, I tend to talk about it as we've equated or we've conflated noticing with lusting. So we yes, tell 100%. boys, if you even get, um, if you even get sexually aroused or you feel attracted to someone you've already sinned and then, and yes. then boys feel so helpless because everywhere they look, they see a woman's body and they think I, I am just going to be a big sinner my whole life. Um, what effect did that kind of messaging have on you? Oh man. Well, I'll say that, and you know, different boys experience their sexuality in different ways and to different levels. And, you know, so that's an important qualifier, but I think, you know, for myself and a lot of young, young men and boys, you kind of feel like it just takes like a strong gust of wind and you're like thinking sexual thoughts and you're feeling sexual feelings. And um, I think so often the response with like alarm and confusion around that rather than this is a beautiful part of being human. And the fact that you see a person and notice that your body responds in a certain way is actually good. And God made you to feel that way. And then what you do next <laughs> is the key. Not the mm -hmm. fact that you're feeling that in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think there can even be, there needs to be even an acknowledgement of the embodied beauty of other human beings and the way that our bodies are drawn to them in certain ways without judgment or shame around that bodily response. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, I can notice somebody that I even find sexually attractive and then just kind of move on with my day. Exactly. Like I don't, I don't, you know, and I think so much of the every man's battle narrative is like, Oh no, the billboard, I know it's there. I'm rounding the corner. I got to hype myself up <laughs> and just like, and like, Oh no, there it is. I looked. And now I got to like pray for 30 minutes and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's terrible. I don't know. Um, and I just, think there it is that's meant to be sexually enticing and i notice myself feeling sexually enticed and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna you know move on with my day and stop thinking about it and i think honestly in so and i'm not saying put yourselves in situations where you're going to be subject to a constant barrage of kind of sexually explicit content or material or anything like that but like certainly you should be able to as an adult man go to the beach without just like fantasizing about everyone around you. Mm -hmm. um, that's not healthy. Yeah. And, and uh, I think people who weren't shaped by this kind of purity culture, every man's battle rhetoric, realize that that's not healthy and often have better habits than the Christian men, ironically, for how they think about the women around them. Yeah, I know we found that we certainly found that in our surveys too. Is in in other in other peer reviewed studies, I found that too. Like when you when you hyper focus on not thinking about something and not yes. seeing something, then don't think about elephants. Up, don't think yeah, about elephants. Then you end yes. up doing that all the time, right? I I also find this 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 is one of the funny things um, about modesty dress codes in church. Like when they mm. tell people you can't wear these things because the men won't be able to worship without lusting. And I think okay, if he can't handle a woman in like a shapely turtleneck, for instance, how is he supposed to handle walking through the mall? Like yes. if he can't handle, um, or if, if the boys in youth group cannot handle girls in swimsuits without t-shirts on, how are they supposed to ever go to the beach? Like, 
<laughs> like, like we're being real. Like if a guy honestly can't handle it without women completely covering up, then why are we letting men go out in public? I, I've never understood that dichotomy. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And I think so often the emphasis, like where, when the emphasis lands on, you know, male nature or this or that biology study that we took to mean this thing about men, um, which may be subject to other <laughs> interpretations. But um, when the focus is all on men as just kind of an immovable fact are like this. And when they see X, they will respond in Y way. Mm -hmm. um, rather than putting the emphasis on men actually cultivating healthier ways of thinking about the people around them. You know, when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Or if a man looks at woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery in his heart. He doesn't say, therefore, men never look at women. Mm -hmm. He is telling men to look at women differently. Don't look at women with lust in your heart. It never means mm -hmm. never look at a woman or just avoid them at all costs and make sure your computer is completely locked down so you'll never see. So, you know, if you see, you know, my wife and I share a computer share a computer you know she does shopping on the computer i see ads for things and just kind of like move on scroll past it's just what it means to be an adult um and man i i mean i could go on and on but <laughs> the the that the responsibility remains with a man and with a young man to grow up into a more mature way of thinking to think about women in humanizing ways without needing to control what they wear, it seems to me. Yeah, I like this quote too. You don't fault a man for being sexual, but men are responsible for how they express their sexuality. So it's like, you know, being attracted to a woman isn't a problem, but now it's up to you what you do with that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so I would say not only is it not a problem, it's, I think it's important to, to say, like, it's a good part of being human. That God that that God made, and 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 vice versa for a woman to be attracted to a man, um, mm -hmm. that is part of the beautiful experience of being a human being. Mm -hmm. But that natural capacity needs to be formed in certain ways. Yeah, yeah, and we can do that. We have the ability. We actually to do that. can't. We actually can do it. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. It is a process of creating good habits and growing up again into mature expressions of your sexuality. But it is something that we do, we can do. And certainly by the power of the Holy Spirit, something that we can grow into Christlikeness in. Yeah. And again, that there's a lot of that in, in Zach's book, uh, non-toxic masculinity. So, so yes. Um, okay. Another, another funny um, headline that you had in your book, big piece of advice. It was don't get married just because you're horny. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about that one a bit? <laughs> yeah, this goes to this uh, verse in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about um, it is better to marry than to burn or to mm -hmm. burn with passion, as that's sometimes um, kind of ex explicated a little bit. And what I say in the book is, you know, I went to Bible college and, you know, there are plenty of plenty of really young couples that you can tell there's all sorts of sexual tension and then they get married and you know i'm not saying that marriage is doomed necessarily mm -hmm. i'm just saying 
your inability to keep it in your pants or feeling like you can't keep it in your pants, I should say, uh, is not in and of itself good reason to get married. Because you can take that to the logical conclusion of like, you know, 14-year-olds can certainly burn with passion for one another, Romeo and Juliet, right? That doesn't mean it's a good idea for them to be like, mom and dad, you know, we were talking after Spanish two in the hallway and we're really <laughs> burning with passion. And we, the apostle Paul said that we should get married because that's better than, than burning with passion. Um, that's not what Paul means. It seems to me, uh, Paul is actually addressing a very specific context in the church in Corinth where people were artificially, um, people who were ready to get married pretty much and were in a even quasi betrothal relationship but were artificially delaying marriage because they felt that it was a less spiritual or less holy state we're holding mm -hmm. off on sex on sex because they thought sex made them farther away from god or something like that and the extended argument in first corinthians 7 paul makes clear he's like listen i am single uh, there are benefits to being single, you, namely you can devote yourself more fully to the work of God, but it is not wrong, it is not a sin mm -hmm. to have sex and to get married. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we have really missed the force of what Paul is saying. If we think being kind of horned up with your boyfriend or girlfriend is a good reason to get married like 10 minutes from now. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, I don't I don't know if, if if I should open the door to this one. And there was one point in the book where you said I could go on and on about every man's battle, but other people already have. Um <laughs> I was just gonna invite you to go. <laughs> Do you have anything that you want to say about every yeah, man's battle that I you mean, haven't said? Yeah, I don't know if I have much more than what I have said, uh, to mm -hmm. be honest. And I think it is I try to leave my I mean, I will say the anecdotes that I recall and the things that I've, uh, I, honestly, I go back and I read some of it and I just can't, like, mm -hmm. I, 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 I can't even get through it. And I think for my purposes, because people like yourself have already done a lot of this good work, mm -hmm. I want to focus more on that central idea of men as because you are male, you are destined to hypersexualize the people around you or the women around you um, is pretty, that is not a man's destiny. That is not one, how every man, ex every man experiences the world. It is not every man's battle in the same way. And when you frame it up as such, I worry it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. um, such that young men learn to anticipate that well you know i can just kind of give myself a break a little bit because this is just you know boys will be boys that's mm -hmm. how my brain works and there's a half truth there you know if but it's not like it is your destiny to you know i hate the phrase mentally undress the people around you Mm -hmm. that's not the destiny of being a man that might be a certain immature expression of male sexuality for some people but it is i i would be really nervous if you hadn't grown up in your capacity to engage with visually what is happening around you in the world in a different way by the time you hit age 25 or 35 or 45, if you're looking at women the same way as you did 
at the beginning of your sexual experiences, uh, you have some growing up to do. Why do you think, because I, I have noticed that when men are talking about this stuff, it does tend to be younger men. I don't know how old you are. I am sure I'm, you're not. I'm all, I'm 32, almost just 32. about 32. Okay. I, I was thinking about that. Why do you, do, do you think there's more of an, of an understanding of this among millennials and, and Gen Zs, Gen Zs? <laughs> um, I live, I live in England currently, so I'm very comfortable. Okay, so you're used to it. Yeah. yeah. Gen Z. Yeah. Gen Z. Um, like, do you, I, I guess what I'm more asking is give me some hope, Zachary, because <laughs> I need some hope. Like, mm. <laughs> I mean, I want to be hopeful. I hope continuing these conversations and um, pointing out the problems with, because I do think it's formational. Like I, as I already said, I do think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So like continuing to produce better resources and calling things out within a community structures and changing the ways we talk to boys about their bodies. And instead of just framing it up, you know, to back to the beginning of our conversation as this individualistic struggle, actually say, guys, you are called to something really beautiful in respecting and honoring and humanizing all the people that you're in relationship with, including all the women around you, including women that are your girlfriend or are not your girlfriend, are your wife or not your wife. Your calling is the same to show the world and your community and these women that there is a beautiful honoring way of being in relationship with other people that I think we see beautifully modeled by the Lord Jesus himself in the way he relates to women. Um, so I'm not sure if that's exactly where you were going with the question, but I think, you know, we're working on it and let's keep working on it. And I do think mm -hmm. it starts, it starts with forming young men in a, in a, into a different way of living out and thinking about their sexuality. Yeah, I, I think I think there is. I I I personally, I'm and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna die on this hill because I need to. But I'm gonna have a lot of faith in the millennials and the Gen Zs because mm. I feel like something's got to change the church. And I know among women, millennial women were just so hurt uh, by purity culture, and that's been largely yes. acknowledged. But I think what is starting to be acknowledged is also how hurt men were. Yes. And that's why, you know, I am so excited about your book. I, I want to read as we're ending up, I just want to read one of my other favorite quotes here, which I think summarizes the whole thing. And you said, purity culture dehumanizes women and children by over-sexualizing their bodies. It dehumanizes men and boys by over-sexualizing their minds. And I thought, yeah, like that really is it. And, mm -hmm. and I think for so many men and boys, there is such a hopelessness about mm -hmm. life with Christ when you feel like just by existing, I'm sinning, you know, the noticing is lusting. I can't totally. get over this. Um, this is such a need I have. And yeah, like, I think that there is such freedom here. So I really, I really do recommend um, non-toxic masculinity. It will be my go-to book for, <laughs> um, to recommend for guys and as they're thinking through these issues. And I, I really thank you for your, um, just your openness and your vulnerability mm -hmm. in the book too. I think that lent a lot, that lent a lot of credibility to it. I thought yeah. that was great. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. So where can people find you in your book? Uh, yeah, I have a personal website that is due for a couple updates, but, uh, <laughs> isn't everybody's personal website due yes. for a couple updates? Uh, that's Zachary C. Wagner. Uh, I'll, since we're doing the Canada thing, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-C-W-A-G-N-E-R.com. 
Um, and then, uh, I'm also the same handle on Twitter, Zachary C. Wagner. That's where I'm most active. You can also <laughs> find me on Instagram, but, uh, Twitter it's and mostly my Twitter. website. Yeah. Twitter and my website are mostly okay. where I'm hanging out. I will put the links to, to those and your book. And now, um, I'm going to let us go, but I'm going to ask you to just stick around for 15 minutes and we will have a conversation just for our patrons. So everybody, yeah. if you are not a patron yet, you are missing out on this great conversation. But thank you for joining us, Zachary. Yeah, thank you. I am so encouraged by his voice in this space. Yes. Like this really is the kind of book that that I've been waiting for. Also, his Twitter's great. Go follow him there. Yes. And again, <laughs> the link is in the podcast notes. So grateful um, to have men speaking up and, and stepping into this space and saying, hey, guys can be better than this. Mm -hmm. Like, why are we portraying guys as incapable of being mature adults and treating women with respect. And so I actually want to just, Becca, while I have you here, I want to give you a chance to react to something. Yes. And you tried to show it to me before we started recording. And I asked, you don't want me to react live? And you said, oh yeah, no, that's what I want. So we're going to see it for the first time now. Yes. So I want to show you a clip that I saw on That Darn Chat um, Instagram reel. I okay. love That Darn Chat. Yeah. She talks a lot about- I follow her. So I may have actually already seen this. So okay. Let's see. Well, let's see. She, 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 um, she talks a lot about mental load and emotional labor. And so we will put a link to her um, channel, her Instagram um, account in the podcast notes, because I, I really do appreciate her. But she had one uh, where she and I'll, I'll set the stage because we're only going to watch we're listen to part of it. Um, but the it was the Steve Harvey show. And a woman stood up to ask a question. And she said, Look, I love my husband. He's an awesome guy. We've been married for six years. But I have to tell him to do everything. He mm -hmm. never takes initiative. He never thinks of anything on his own. I have to say, hey, can you give me a hug? Hey, can we go out for dinner this weekend? Hey, can we do something tonight? Hey, like he just never makes any moves yeah. or thinks of anything on his own. I have definitely already seen this on my For You page. Just okay. so you know. So we'll not be live reacting. Our For You pages are the same. Okay, here we go. <laughs> but here is the advice that was given. I don't think you're being unfair for wanting it, but what I would definitely say is, is you married a man. <laughs> well, yeah, I did. Hello. Yeah. Hello. And so he hears about 25% of what you say. He hears nothing that you don't say, you know? And even of the 25% that he hears you say, he kind of gets 5% of that. Because okay. we'll be sitting next to, any man who's ever been in a relationship sitting next to a woman, you know, what's wrong, babe? Nothing. Oh, okay. Right? Because we don't talk to each other like that right. then. So, so, so getting used to talking to a woman and speaking your language and like hearing behind the lines of what you're saying, that is so far beyond. Once you tell him what you want, he's going he's gonna to remember it and he's going to try to give it to you and make Okay, so first thought, this idea that it's all women's fault because they don't say what they want. Uh -huh. What about all the women who told their husbands one month into marriage, hey, I want you to do the dishes? Yeah. Well, also, she like at the beginning of this, she was saying, I tell him I want yes. a hug. She has been telling yeah. him. Yeah. The whole idea, people say this all the time, like, I don't want him to be a mind reader, but is it, you know, wrong for me to want that? They don't, they're, they're right. They don't want a mind reader. But they do want someone who tries. Yeah. Because what people often, what I see happen all the time is you have women saying like, yeah, but like I want him to bring home flowers. Okay, then why do you tell him to bring home flowers? Because it's not actually flowers. <laughs> it's just I want him to do something. Like if you're in a marriage where there's this relationship where you can expect that your partner will think about you mm -hmm. and will do little things. Like 
you know, every now and then just make you tea without you having to ask Mm -hmm. or just do the dish that's on the counter without it having to be reminded eight times or just ask about something that you told them about last week. Like, hey, you had a dentist appointment. How'd that go? Do you have any cavities? Or like like silly <laughs> little things like that. If you're in the pattern of actually being a partner who pays attention, mm-hmm. you don't also need as many of the grand gestures. No, that's very we, true. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things where literally women are not actually like... Because I've been in this situation. This is before Connor and I figured out the whole mental load thing. We had this conversation where it's like, okay, but just tell me what you want. It's like, well, I'm giving you examples of the kinds of things that I want. I don't actually want this. Yeah. Right? And then yeah. when he was like, oh, and I was like, oh, and then I said, oh, and then we got it. Right? And so this is what we're asking you to do is just say, oh, and get it. Yeah. But, but yeah, so, 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 so that's, that's problem one. Okay. Because yeah. we're just simply asking guys to be a partner and to care. Yeah. But, but my issue is, okay, so what is he saying? He's saying a man only listens to 25% of what you say and he only hears about 5% of that. Yeah. Okay. 5% of 25%. No, I think that he just doesn't, based on the complete crap that this guy is spouting, I, I don't think that he understands what he actually said statistically. So let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He means 5% of what the woman actually said from the beginning, not okay. 5% of 25%. Because again, this man is not striking me as someone who right. thinks through his words. But we're talking about non-toxic masculinity today. Yeah. How is that not toxic masculinity? Especially since we know that all of us have selective hearing in a lot of areas. Yeah. Right? We just, we actually do know this. We mm-hmm. do not take in 100% of the stuff, but we do take in more when we actually consider it important. Yes. So think about your husband and how he only hears 5% of what's really going on. Does he, if your husband's into football, does he only see 5% of the plays? Yeah. Does he only know 5% of the facts about his favorite team? Mm-hmm. Like, no, he learns the stuff. Like, if your husband's really into gaming, does he only play five, Does he only pay attention for 5% of the game? Yeah. No, he actually pays attention to the whole thing. And so if, you're, if you see your spouse is important, you better be paying attention to what they say or else you're doing selective hearing. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's we not only fair. do that for things that we don't think are important. Exactly. And the idea that, well, he's a man. You married a man. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember when we started speaking at marriage conferences in the early 2000s, this was so much a part of the material. Women, you need to understand you married a man, you didn't marry a woman. Yeah. And so you can't expect him to be romantic. You can't expect him to think of things the way you did. You can't expect him to know the dishes why not yep like (laughs) we are just simply asking for someone to be a partner and to say that because he's a man he can only hear 25 percent of what you say that is that is so (laughs) patronizing to men especially since we all were dating these men before we got married Mm -hmm. they did this when we were dating yeah. Like men do this when they are dating. They mm-hmm. pay attention when they are dating. They send the follow-up texts. They romance you. They send the lovely, I'm thinking of you in your pretty eyes texts, right? They right. do that kind of stuff. And then when you get married, a lot of people, like there are so many studies on this. Again, mm-hmm. let's just bring it back to housework because that's what this woman was also talking about too, wasn't she? I don't know if she was on this particular reel, okay. but that's normally what but she anyway, talks this, about. But anyway, this, this um, Instagram account, this, well, I know her from TikTok. Um, the TikTok account, um, she talks a lot about mental load is we know that when people get married, men tend to end up doing less labor and women end up doing more. Mm-hmm. And so all this stuff where you were in this relationship beforehand where, you know, if you were living in different places, you were both mm-hmm. doing your own stuff mm-hmm. and then you get married and all of a sudden one of your load gets lighter and one of them gets heavier. Yeah. So all of a sudden, as soon as men get married, they just give up. 
Well, not all. Of no, course. no. But like statistically yeah. speaking, yes. when men get married, they give up on being good in relationships in at least one area. Because they're told they can because of stuff like this. Exactly. Because they're told that is what a man is. A man is someone who disregards what a woman says. Yeah. And I think what I find so funny is that it's the gender essentialists who talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they also say that men are supposed to be the protectors, the heroes. And yeah. I'm like, hey, what hero dumps a pile of dirty underwear on the heroine and says, yeah, your problem, not mine. I'm a dude. Like, that's not mm-hmm. a hero. That's a complete bum. That's the guy who she's with before she finds the right guy yeah like don't be the guy she's with before she's supposed to find the right guy in the rom-com dudes like be the right guy because you're married to her so Mm -hmm. act like it yeah don't act like the filler love interest (laughs) act like the actual good dude like for pity's sake this is not hard watch any (laughs) rom-com okay and ask yourself which one am i (laughs) would i be cast as the guy that you're like leave him leave him dump his butt dump his butt or would you be the guy where it's like get him run after him flag down the plane no one is flagging down a plane for a dude who leaves like a million dishes out for his wife and forgets to put his underwear in the laundry hamper and leaves her cleaning until 10 o'clock at night while he's playing video games. Now, again, Connor and I, both very messy people, but we are both messy and we both clean. And so that's okay because it's equal. It's equally dysfunctional in terms of the mess, okay? But we're talking about this situation where, like, no one is rooting for the dude who makes his wife's life harder. No one's rooting for him. So no one will root for you if that's what you are doing. If you don't know the basic questions a doctor would ask at your child's visit, if you don't know what's going on in your wife's life because you haven't asked, Mm -hmm. and now there are some women who don't tell. We know that, okay? Mm -hmm. But if it's because you are not asking, if it's because you're not paying attention because you're just getting to live your life while she takes care of all this stuff in the background, if you don't even know when your kid's last dentist appointment was, Mm -hmm. like... No one's rooting for you. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to say that. You yeah. are the filler dude in the rom-com. Yeah. Stop it. Stop it. Amen. And you're more than capable of hearing 100% of what she says. Exactly. Not 25%. Okay. I want to I wanna um, take a look at another way that we see this, because some people call this uh, weaponized incompetence, mm-hmm. um, where we give the expectation that men are incapable of doing all of these things that women do to keep the family together. And so we can't expect it of men. Yeah. So men weaponize that against women. Be like, yeah, but I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude. Um, and I want to show you some examples of that in Shanti Feldon's yes. books of, weaponi- of, of weaponized incompetence of men and how she talks to both teen girls and for young women only. Remember, these are teenagers. Yes. And adult women and for women only. And for those of you on YouTube, you can see that on both of these books, I have these special stickers. So we sell hazardous material stickers that you can put on books. Um, that you They just fold right over the spine and then they go onto the front cover and they alert they, they, they're just they're really pretty on your on your bookshelf because you can put them on all your harmful books and then it just alerts people I have this book on my bookshelf, but I don't think it's a good one. So it's yeah. a great conversation starter. If you are a counselor, this is awesome because you can put hazardous material stickers on all of the awful books. And then when people come into your counseling office and they'll see that, that can be a great conversation starter and they can start realizing, hey, you know what? I read that book. Maybe that's part of my problem. Yeah. Or <laughs> you'll avoid some of the problems where someone says, yeah, but I saw that on your bookshelf. It's like, oh no, yes. it was there for research purposes, sweetie. Yes. Yeah. So these are hazardous material stickers. This book contains teaching statistically proven to cause harm this book is for research purposes only yeah so we do sell these out of our store and we will put a link in the podcast notes but i want to talk about um we'll start with the teenage one eh? yeah we'll start with the one for teenagers okay so 
In this situation, this is in a chapter where Shanti Felden is explaining to girls that guys need to feel respected, unconditionally respected, she says, and that there's a big difference between being um, prideful and feeling adequate. Mm -hmm. And the problem that boys have is that they just feel inadequate because they so want you to think that they are adequate. Um, but they are so afraid of looking inadequate to girls. And again, she didn't use any outside statistics that shows this is also a very common problem among young girls. Right. Um, nothing about that. Nothing also about recognizing that some boys are not adequate. Yes. Um, in some areas and they're adequate in others and that we all have our own areas of geniuses and our own areas. Anyway, I had, this is a whole thing for me. Yeah. And we actually wrote quite a bit of this in, yeah. in She Deserves Better. You'll, if you've read it, you'll know the story of Chantel and Bryson <laughs> that yeah, we wrote about. Something like that. I think their actual names were. Yes. <laughs> um, there was a fictional couple that we made up to, to, to work through some of the things that she said in this chapter. But I want, I want to read you a story that she says under the heading of hearing disrespect. So she says, and this is, she's quoting an older guy that she interviewed. In the man world, if you want to get something done, repaired, printed, or built, if you will respect the man and be polite, everything will open up for you. If a woman says to a mechanic, I have a few questions, but I trust your judgment. You're the best. And that's why I brought you my car. Her chances of being cheated drop dramatically. But if she comes in with a princess diva, I expect bad things attitude and makes a bunch of demands, everything will suddenly get very expensive and go in slow motion. Shanti actually acknowledges that she's guessing the diva was just trying to be assertive so she didn't get taken, but she says we shouldn't actually do that. Yeah, and I think what's, what I find so offensive about that is, first of all, remember, this is being told to teenagers, and I will say I was advertised this book when I was 12 years old reading Brio Magazine, mm-hmm. and Brio Magazine was targeted to girls in junior high as well as high school. Right. And so this is being this is being advertised to girls who didn't even, I didn't even have my first period yet at that point. Right. Like, and I was supposed to be told to unconditionally respect all men mm-hmm. and make all men feel like they're the best. Yeah. That's for, that, first of all, should already make the the hairs in the back of your neck stand up because mm-hmm. what is more dangerous than teaching young girls that your job is to cater to the emotions of all men? Mm-hmm. Your job is to make men feel good about themselves. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially not young girls. Like young girls need to be told your job is to stand up for yourself and keep yourself safe because yeah. frankly, men are not going to do that as a whole you right. know as a whole group right um find the safe ones that's great but like mm-hmm. your job is not to make men feel better about themselves yeah um and i think that the other thing that really bothers me is this idea that the the proper woman mm-hmm. is the one who sounds like enamored with this guy mm-hmm. right like the idea that y- you're the best it's not even like hey you know you're the mechanic i'm not so give me your um Give me your recommendations. And if it's really expensive, I might get a second opinion um, just to make sure. But I'm sure that if you're not doing anything untoward, then obviously I'll just come back to you. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll be honest. I said that when we got our air conditioning unit fixed. Mm-hmm. We said, hey, give us your best quote. We are going to check it with a second opinion from mm-hmm. someone else in the field. And if yours matches, we'll go back with you. We won't go to the other guy. Right. Because I was like, that's fair. And then if you're being honest, you're being honest. But that would have been seen as assertive. Yes. But I, I here's what here's what bothers me about all of this. Um... If a guy yeah. were to be assertive, the mechanic would do what... Well, that's the implication because yeah. it's a man's world, right? Right In man spaces. Right. And 
This isn't actually about men feeling inadequate. This no. is actually about misogyny. Oh, it's about men feeling like women are just at their feet, lapping up every word that they say. Yeah. This is about men having their, frankly, their porn star fantasy right in front of them all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, the problem is the number of scenarios in these books where what a woman is supposed to say sounds like the opening of a really bad 80s porno. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you want to do this okay like seriously trigger warnings people who are triggered by discussions of porn okay ready like think about like think about this like like do you have the the horrible bass in the background but okay. like you know the, i have a few questions but i trust your judgment you're the best like seriously like the idea yeah. like and and i know that people might be like oh that's not that's a little bit it was like no you know what women have been portrayed in this society that sees men as smart and pragmatic as and women as just in essence sexual outlets yeah women have to always act like we would be okay with sleeping with you mm-hmm. like genuinely look around and you won't be able to unsee it mm-hmm. the way that women are told to act in almost every single scenario is one where we are like yeah i kind of find you a little hot like we're supposed yeah. to have that flirty kind of mentality no matter where we are like well you're the best i trust you like mm-hmm. why does she need to trust him yeah, he's he not, hasn't like, done anything yet to prove that he's trustworthy. He why does he have nothing. to be the best? Like, mm. there's this whole idea that women exist to prop up the egos of men, and that is not true. Women exist; they just exist, mm-hmm. just but, like men do. But the idea that a man cannot handle a woman who approaches him with anything other than absolute adoration yeah. and deference is is very toxic and horrifying this is part of toxic masculinity what is in these books because it's saying that he cannot treat you like a human being he cannot see you as an equal you have to defer to him you have to subjugate yourself to get him to take you seriously and to get what you want well no 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 because he's not going to take you seriously no that's the whole point the goal is to be okay with a man never taking you seriously because he thinks that you are in awe of him yeah Here's another example of the same thing from this time. It's her adult book for women only. And she's talking about in this particular thing about the same thing, how men need respect. Um, And the way that you show this is that you never, ever, ever tell him if he's driving, if he's gone the wrong way. Yes. Okay. So bizarre example. It's so unnecessary. And, And here's how she describes it. A man might think of it like this. If she doesn't trust me in something as small as finding my way along the road, why would she trust me in something important like being a good breadwinner or a good father. If she doesn't respect me in this small thing, she probably doesn't really respect me at all. The next time your husband stubbornly drives in circles, ask yourself what is more important, being on time to the party or his feeling trusted. So no contest. Can I just say there are two cognitive distortions in that one thing. There's Mm -hmm. all or nothing thinking on the man's part. So this idea that all or nothing thinking is a common cognitive distortion that people engage in and it's very unhealthy. And when you go to therapy, which the men who Shanti is basing her books on should seriously try some therapy. (laughs) Okay. Like if you go to therapy, that's one of the things they work with. Like, okay, it's not all or nothing thinking. Like if I fail this test, I'm never going to be able to get a job. No, 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 no. Calm down. Calm down. You can fail a test and you can still get a job. Okay. You're going to be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. This idea. Well, she doesn't, if, if I turn the wrong direction, she says I turn the wrong direction. Then she's going to think that I'm a horrible father. Holy moly. <laughs> let's take this back. Holy. Where did we go? Okay. Yeah. So I see we took a hard left. Huh, that's an awesome example. Yes, the wrong exactly. directions. But anyway, we took a hard left here at reality. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a cognitive distortion called all or nothing thinking. Yeah. You know, and then the other one is this, this idea that 
this is false equivalent. There's a, there's also this this um, either or fallacy mm-hmm. that she has at the end. So the man is engaging in all or nothing thinking, and this mm-hmm. is seen as as a good thing. First right. of all, it's not seen as a cognitive distortion. Yeah, it's not seen as hey, women. Sometimes just like how we feel like this, men mm-hmm. also engage in all or nothing thinking. And so if your husband's getting getting worked up about this let's let's deal with it and say hey i still trust you you're just going the wrong way yeah. you know that's not what she says she then says either mm-hmm. you shut up and let him keep going around in circles even though you're getting late for your friend's birthday party and you're being you know unkind to your friend right or you speak up and your husband thinks you hate him mm-hmm. and that's a false dichotomy yeah. That's a logical fallacy mm-hmm. where you take the two extremes and you put them against each other. So either you say nothing or you ruin your marriage. <laughs> That's not actually what it is. Mm-hmm. You can do something else and you can say, or he could grow a backbone and yeah. he could like not this is, be And this is, the essential, this is the essential problem is that her reality of men is that they are so insecure yeah. and that women have to cater to this. Whereas, is it really that men are that insecure? Mm-hmm. And some are, for sure. Oh, yeah. Or is it more likely that men just simply like not being challenged? And so we're going to weaponize the idea of men's inadequacy mm-hmm. and men's men's deep feelings of inadequacy so that we tell women you can never, ever, ever say anything because mm-hmm. you will ruin his self-confidence. And that's a really nice place to be. Well, because I think what, what, what actually happens is everyone, man, woman, adult, child, there are people who are incredibly healthy and people who are incredibly unhealthy, mm-hmm. right? The difference is we know that in the way that our North American world is structured mm-hmm. for pretty much our entire history, men have had the power, right? Yeah. I mean, we only had the first women in government, like in your lifetime in yes. some aspects of government, right? Yes. Like this is ridiculous. So the idea men have always been in charge. And so when you have both men and women who are emotionally unhealthy, who are in relationships with each other mm-hmm. and men are in charge, who is going to end up having to pick up the slack? Yeah. Right. So it's not that men are more unhealthy than women. It's not that women aren't unhealthy and men are. It's just that women have not had excuses. And so when you see stuff like this, where it's saying, you know, well, your your husband won't be able to handle being told that he went the wrong direction. I was like, wait, wait, wait. Do we expect this of our five-year-old daughters? Yeah. And if we expect it of our five-year-old daughters, we can expect it of our 45-year-old husbands. Mm-hmm. Okay? Like, if we expect it of literal kindergartners, mm-hmm. right? If my three-year-old son is supposed to be able to calm himself down after he was told you did something that hurt mommy, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> we can expect that our husbands, who are grown men, will mm-hmm. be able to deal with being told you hurt me, mm-hmm. okay? These are things that we can expect of men, and it is we're not saying that one is better than the other. What we are saying is that one has been coddled for generations upon generations in a way that the other has not. And that is coming to a head right now because women are being told you deserve better because you're giving better and you're not getting in return. This is unfair and God wants better for you because God does not want his sons to be stunted by ideas like what Shanti is saying. We're like, well, he he just engages in all or nothing thinking, so he never has to be free of that. No, God wants men to be free of these cognitive distortions as well. God mm-hmm. wants men to get therapy, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, let's, let's do the work. Become, again, just going back, become the guy that we're rooting for in the rom-com. Yep. Don't be the filler dude. Okay? Amen. Amen. So there you go. <laughs> 
Let's move towards a faith that promotes non-toxic masculinity, not one that promotes toxic masculinity, a faith that encourages everyone to be emotionally healthy because mm-hmm. you know what? We are all made in the image of God. We all have the Holy Spirit and we can totally all do it. So thank you for joining us in the Bear Marriage Podcast. Thank you for supporting our book, She Deserves Better. Pick up a copy of Non-Toxic Masculinity too, and we will see you again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>